0: Go to some meetings where people are. I mean, learn to be around people that are different and have conversation. You'd be surprised what's not different.
1: Welcome to Stigma is Curable, a new mini-series offered by The Promethean Project and Break the Chains, Find Your Flame. Our goal is to have conversations about certain stigmas in mental health and physical health and wellness. Each month, we will invite a guest speaker, an expert, to come and present to the community about a specific stigma and have a community conversation to break down the stigmas and create connection. This month's presentation is by Dr. Khadijah Tewitt and it's entitled, The Criminalization of Trauma in Black and Brown Communities. A quick note. Dr. Tewart uses some YouTube videos in the presentation due to copyrights. We couldn't include the video audio for that, but the show notes have the links for the videos. So please feel free to stop and watch the videos either after or during the podcast to get the full experience.
0: Hello, village. Thank you, thank you, thank you for joining us tonight. Again, my name is Dr. Khadijah Tewitt. I am a psychiatric mental health nurse practitioner. um, And thank you as we speak about the criminalization of trauma in black and brown communities. Um, So in order to do this, we must look at and understand some of the historical content of policing, um, draw some parallels to current policing tactics and understand what trauma is and how it presents in black and brown communities. Um, this information, it is brief. It's meant to invoke some deeper thoughts and draw some connections um, into today's disparities and some of the thought process behind how we even got to where we are today. Okay, so let's take a little a little stroll down historical lane. Because if we don't understand the history, we're going to keep making the same mistakes. So the first thing to understand um, where we are today is to look at the road travel to get here. So the first form of policing in the South was known as the slave patrol, um, which began in the colonies of of Carolina in 1704. So the patrol was usually volunteers made up of three to six men um, riding horseback, carrying whips, ropes, even guns, um, who were empowered to use vigilante tactics to enforce laws um, related to slavery. So slave patrols enforce slave owners um, control over the person and labor of their slaves by maintaining three primary duties. Um, So one was raiding slave dwellings, looking for weapons and educational contraband. So this is important to understand that people were not allowed to protect themselves nor educate themselves. So that's one. Two is dispersing slave gatherings. So there was no unity and no collective strategizing. And the third was patrolling the areas around plantations and towns to apprehend suspects um, for cruel and corporal punishment. Um, So members of the slave patrol could forcefully enter anyone's home, based on suspicion that they were sheltering people who had escaped bondage. So fast forward to today where we actually have still no-knock warrants, right? We have suspicion and we're coming in your home. No questions asked. Okay. So that brings us to what most people believe was the end of slavery. So after the emancipation, approximately 4 million slaves in 1865 um, were freed and the former Confederate legislator, legislatures quickly uh, enacted a new set of laws known as the Black Codes. And so this forced formerly enslaved people back into an exploitive um, labor system similar to plantation slavery. Um, they, the goal of the Black Codes was to keep white wealth and power intact despite the abolition of slavery. And Black Codes did, did grant certain legal rights to Black people, including the right to marry, own property and sue in court, But these codes also made it illegal for them to serve on juries, um, testify against white people, or serve in state militias. So you see there's no real um, way to even advocate for yourself in those times. It's also important to note that laws within the Black Code allowed for young Black orphans um, to go into white plantation owners who would force them into work. So it's really important to know that if you were an orphan, you were essentially put right back into the plantation for free labor. And upon arrest, many free African-Americans were made to work for no wages, um, essentially being reduced to the very um, definition of a slave. So that lasted for approximately three years. Um, And in 1868, the ratification of the 14th Amendment made the Black Codes illegal by giving formerly enslaved Black people equal protection of laws through the Constitution. Okay, So this would soon be replaced with Jim Crow laws. And for about 80 years, Jim Crow laws Um, Mandated separate public spaces for black and white people such as schools, libraries, water fountains and restaurants, enforcing the separation was part of the police's, the police job Um, and so black people who broke laws or violated social norms, often endured police brutality. And so I I think it's important to understand the law and so according to the 13th amendment um, slavery is legal. And it actually reads that neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as punishment for crime whereof the party shall have been duty, duly convicted, shall exist within the United States. So in truth, slavery is not dead, it's just been made legal. So if you commit a crime legally, according to the 13th amendment, that is the one caveat to slavery still existing. Follow the money. Okay. No matter what happens and whatever you're thinking, we always follow the money. So, mass incarceration is a multi billion dollar business in the United States. Um, There are a ton of financial benefits and incentives for private companies and corporations. Um, Imagine we can call anywhere in the United States for free, anywhere, right? Before we used to have to, it used to cost us to call across the country, no more. However, there are specialized phone companies that win monopoly contracts and charge families up to 24.95 for a 15 minute phone call. So even in the United States, if you are incarcerated, you can't call home without these egregious bills. And oftentimes these are families that can't afford um, to keep that connection going. So most families have limited income and this furthers the divide of connections between incarcerated individuals and their loved ones. Um, A part of the business is the school to prison pipeline. So increased school violence prompted calls for increased surveillance in school. We have more cameras, more metal, more metal detectors and other equipment to heighten police surveillance at schools. Um, after Columbine, which most people are very familiar with that school um, shooting, the federal government thought that um, the, um, through the Office of Community Oriented Policing Services implemented the cops in school grant program. Um, This program awarded about $823 million for schools to hire resource officers between 1995 and 2005. Then the Secure Our Schools Federal Grant Program provided about $123 million from 2002 to 2011 for schools to purchase cameras, metal detectors and other security equipment. The most recent federal expansion was a response to the tragic 2018 school shooting in Parkland, Florida. And Congress passed the Stop School Violence Act, which provided $75 million in 2018 and will continue to provide an additional $1 million every year between 2019 and 2028 to expand policing activities and surveillance. Just imagine if a fraction of that money had been invested into recognizing and treating childhood trauma that caused some of this distress and chaos in the first place, right? Prevention. I'm a really big on hearing stories and bringing narratives to life. So I have a couple of clips that I just think really bring in to perspective and I hope they play. Okay, so what's the ace in the hole, right? That's our adverse childhood experiences. Um, And when you have them, you're already starting below level. You already have stressors that are above and beyond what children should be experiencing. Um, So let's talk about that and the effects of this toxic stress in children. So the main three categories um, of adverse childhood experiences are abuse, neglect, um, which includes household dysfunction um, and abuse can be physical emotional or sexual neglect can also be physical and emotional and household dysfunction um, which can include mental illness and incarcerated relative a mother treated violently um, family members with substance abuse history and divorce um, i think it's really important to add racism and community violence such as the sudden death of a peer or peers family or loved one um, definitely is a trauma that plagues many black and brown communities and almost a normative basis. Um, In the city of Springfield alone, community violence plagues so many of our children. And, And I often ask the question, how many times are our kids supposed to lose their peers, clean the blood off of their shoes and expect it to be okay the next day with no resources and no support? So what does it look like in these kids? Um, trauma and toxic stress lead to depression, anger, anger, anxiety, um, impaired learning and memory. Kids cannot think and process under this amount of pressure. There's also hypervigilance um, and a reduced attention span. Children have difficulty experiencing joy. And I keep saying children because I think that we treat our teens and adolescents and young adults as adults. And we have to keep in mind that their brains aren't fully developed and they're going to act as age appropriate children should be able to act. Um, So they have difficulty experiencing joy. And this form of stress also makes it difficult for them to understand the relevance of certain situations and how to respond appropriately. This further perpetuates the risk of poor coping techniques and high risk behaviors. So we have to understand that these kids are exposed to enormous amounts of stress that are now made to seem like they're just normal and there's no resources to help them process or move through or or to heal. Um, And then how do we label this trauma and the behaviors that we're seeing? I'm gonna tell you one blanket response that I hear people say is that they're just bad. It's a bad kid, kids just bad, they're awful, terrible. Um, Who's a bad kid? What visuals come up in your mind when you think about the bad kids, right? Um, Is this a trauma response that we're seeing? You know, how how do we respond to the trauma? Who and what supports are offered for these kids who are suffering? And which children receive recommendations for counseling versus detention, suspension, or other juvenile court interventions? How dangerous is it to the child when trauma and maladaptive behaviors are negatively labeled and treated accordingly. Because let's be honest, words matter. And what we say and how we feed our kids matter. And what we tell them matters. And so if we're not telling them what they're experiencing in a way that reduces the trauma, then we're perpetuating it. So this um, video I'm gonna warn um, is disturbing. It is a recent video from this month of a nine-year-old suicidal child who the family called for help. Some of you may have heard the story um, or seen the video, but I felt like it was important to understand the response to a nine-year-old child who is suicidal, nine years old. And she says, they say to her, you're acting like a child. And she reminds them that she is a child. She tells them that you're hurting me. There's a dismissiveness and a desire that compliance is the ultimate goal. I would say that there's no parent. We would not be able to touch or treat our children that way when we have difficulty controlling their behaviors without criminal charges being pressed against us. So, and I'd also like to bring attention to trauma-informed care where you have a male aggressively putting his hands on a child who is suicidal. So I just wanna keep in in frame the levels and the layers of the trauma that is is being inflicted. All right, so this is another video um, and it actually shows what's happening in a school um, with with, um, an altercation with students. So important takeaways that we should see that that young lady was unconscious and the ultimate goal was still to detain her, not to worry about her safety, not to assess for injury, detainment. And the reason was failure to comply. She's a, and again, she's a female, a young lady, that is abuse. I'd also like to say that the officer did a lot of good things and had some really strong things to speak to his character and so I think what we see is a serious lack of training a one-size-does-not-fit-all response and that this officer was not trained to be in a school with children but yet because he had these accolades there's an assumption that there's an appropriate response to trauma and, and that assumption is dangerous. Promise you we are getting through the business guys. I, I again say that it's really important to hear the voices of the people that are being affected. Um, so this, this is a five minute video, but this is the last one, I promise that. Um, and we're gonna get into some, a few things and then we're gonna open up the table to some discussion. Um, but please take a listen. How do the mouths of babes What experiences to have to carry when you're just trying to learn? And what if you don't have those parents or those resources at home? Where are you supposed to get them? Who is considered your resource? So let's talk about the criminal response versus the trauma-informed response. So we know that we have more surveillance in schools than they have in, in even most jailhouses right now um, or courthouses. And so we put police officers in there, we put cameras in there and we put medical, metal detectors in there. We do things like in-house detention, suspensions. Um, and then there's the talk about, and we'll get into this, defunding, right? What is that and what does that mean? And then there's the trauma-informed response. Um, and so as opposed to having school police officers, which we need to understand that for a lot of us in our community, that's triggering, you know, and in, in mental, health we talk about things that are, are triggers, a police officer in your school, sends a very clear sign about what, what did the child say in the video, we can't mess up. We're not given, you know, the same amount of chances. Kids are supposed to mess up. That's what they do. They're supposed to be allowed to make mistakes and then have guidance. What shouldn't happen is that those mistakes lead to being arrested or criminalized or put into a system that's not gonna look at what brought you there in the first place. Something else that we need is accredited uh, mental health and resilience courses for accredited mental health, excuse me, and resilience courses for students. Um, This needs to be ingrained in what we do. We can't let behavioral health be on the fringes, on the outside that if somebody displays an emotion, we'll see if we can get the resource to them. There needs to be an understanding that everybody is experiencing an array of emotions and that we should all learn how to deal with them. And it's equally as important as learning about science or history or math. If you can't manage your emotions and get credit that that's something that's very important, then it's gonna be minimized in everything that you do. Um, And then as opposed to, detention or in-house, we need to have coping, um, de-stress resilience rooms where kids can learn about their negative behaviors and better ways to cope and better responses when they feel stressed and not be punished for not having the tools to act appropriately. We need to increase community supports. So when these kids are, I'll say it coming into the hospital because they just lost their friend or they are the one that's laying up in the hospital What happens then? Who's at the bedside? Who's making sure that you're getting to them when they're most vulnerable and getting to their peers when they're actually at the point where they just might listen? Or are we allowing them to walk back out the door with the trauma and the poor coping and the police and expect them to just figure out how to do? It's not gonna happen. So that brings us to the advocacy and the need to refund and understanding that the police have a specific job that they need to do. It's not a one size fit all, I'm a nurse. I'm not gonna pretend that I'm a cardiologist. I'm not going into labor and delivery I work in behavioral health. That's my specialty. And we need to create spaces for the work to happen without one umbrella, the please do all good. It's not true. There's a deep rooted history. There's history that brings trauma back into communities. There is a need to gain control of um, more than help. And so we have to look at the historical context and how it brings brings us right to where we are today, even to the responses that we can put so much money in. But where is it going? We're funneling right back into the system. Um, so with that said, Village, let's talk about it. That was a lot of a lot of tea and a little bit of time.
1: Thank you so much, Dr. it I I love the presentation you did amazing on that and very informative. And and I think you definitely opened up a lot of people's eyes watching on Facebook or watching in this Zoom meeting. Um, So we're going to open up to some questions and answer uh, component of our presentation today. Um, So what I'm going to ask people is just to, if you have questions or comments that came up in Dr. Tuart's presentation, if you could send me a chat with the question or the comment and I'll call on you. And so that way we can facilitate the the conversation that way without everyone unmuting and having a free for all on on questions and answers. We have some pre-entered questions. So I'm gonna start with those and then we'll go to the chat for questions. So um, Dr. Tuitt, the first question we have here is how can educators and school administrators best address the needs of students in black and brown communities?
0: Yeah. that's a great question and we definitely need to increase the awareness. We need to look at what are the resources, right? We need to have a clear understanding about what is being presented in the schools as supports. And we need to understand that if there's this much money that can be put into surveillance and officers, then where is the funding for the counselors and the supportive rooms? And so I think as educators, as healthcare providers, as good people, We need to understand that to criminalize the trauma doesn't help it. And so bringing those helpful resources, you know, I did a resiliency course with um, central football players, um, freshmen who were at high risk for failing, and they learned um, how to write, how to express their emotions. We did yoga, nothing better than seeing the biggest, clumsiest football players doing yoga and loving it, right? Because how do you know you don't like it? Did you ever do it? Or were you just told that you don't like it? And you believe what you were told because we tell them and they listen, right? Teaching them how to think or breathe. So when they're stressed out, they can put their hands under their desk and relieve their stress before they get up and do a presentation or before it gets bad and they react. Just giving them the tools and then creating space, inviting their families in. We are a village. And so we have this this world where everybody has to work and take care of families and it's impossible to be there. So if we're going to have tutoring after school, let's provide the meals, let's invite the parents because I can guarantee you parents wanna be able to support their kids. They just might not have the education to. So if you're gonna teach, teach them all, right? Invite the parents to come in with their kids. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. Maybe they'll learn something. At the end of the day, they can eat and go home and be a family and not have this continued pressure. But I think if we looked at our resources, we can come up with some solutions that are much more helpful. What is a counselor doing? How many students do they actually have? Is that a valued resource? Or is it something that's stretched in that only the most critical people get? Where's the curriculum? Is this ingrained in school? Shouldn't we all be taking courses on how to manage our emotions? At at every age and stage, that's appropriate. And so why isn't this in every school curriculum? And so I think that we have to advocate and not continue to just go along with what's been normal.
1: Fantastic, are you ready for another one? Absolutely. All right, so this is kind of a generalized question but I think that it's the reason why we're having this conversation is how can anyone interested in helping help with this movement um, of decriminalizing trauma? in black and brown communities?
0: So I think we all have a voice and we need to use them. We need to understand who our elected officials are. We need to hold them accountable. We need to all be following the money and understand that it's a big business that makes a lot of people wealthy and destroys a lot of families. So I think advocacy is on all of us. Um, Being aware is on all of us. Demanding more following, you know, these kids in the schools get a lot of money. Where's the money going? How is that resource being divvied up? Do any of us know where this money goes? So I think it's fair for us to ask the questions and to understand who's making the decisions and why those decisions are being made and who's at the table. Oftentimes there's no representation, you know, and that's a big problem. Um, I've been asked why, for instance, a doctorate degree, not for a title, because it's the only thing that's gonna get me to the table to make some of the decisions that are affecting my community. And so when people know that there's something happening, when there's a vote occurring, because it's also like a secret underground society that nobody is aware of happening because they only keep the certain groups there that they want to acquiesce the situation. And so I think it's being the person who lets other people know, hey, they're meeting about this. This is a topic that's out there. Let your voice be heard. But if we don't know what's happening, how do you advocate? Who's making the decisions? Half of us don't even know, but all of our children are subject to the decisions that are being made. So advocacy, finding out, telling the stories, bringing people to the forefront. And when we see something, say something. And I know everybody, you know, there's this word ally in it. And it's it's a trigger word for me almost. um, Because it's really based on someone else's comfort level. And so I can't tell you how many times something really bad has happened. And in that moment, no one says anything. But I can't tell you how many sidebars or emails or text, or, oh my God, that was bad. I'm really sorry that happened to you. That doesn't mean anything to me right now. You're not being an ally. You're absolving yourself of guilt. What we need to do is stop in the moment when something's not right and say, hold on. What are we doing here? What caused this kid to react like this? What other options and resources are there? And first of all, did we even acknowledge anything with the, ch- with, with the kid that's being affected? Like, did we acknowledge that they have a right to be upset about something? That their feelings are appropriate, but their reactions might not be? I don't even think we validate. We just tell them they're wrong and they're bad. And if they don't get it together, they're not going to amount to much. And guess what? They believe that. Because how do you get, it, get something together that you're not taught? How do you figure something out that you just don't know? So the only option is failure. Because we're not giving the tools for them to be better we're making assumptions and putting it on their back to figure it out.
1: The next one, you you kind of spoke to in the presentation, but I think we can expand on it a little bit more. Um, it's talking about why so many survivors of trauma that this person works with are involved with the legal system as defendants. So I know that we had talked about ACEs and the school to prison pipeline I think this question is kind of expanding out from there of, of just more of a generalized um, concept and then also talking about adulthood and what that looks like as well.
0: So anything that's not treated or taken care of just gets worse. And so early intervention is critical. You know, we have kids' personalities are developed already by the time they're three or four. We teach them little things very young. Sharing, you know, being nice, being patient, waiting your turn. I think that somewhere along the line, those things fall through. And I think, depending on who you are and what people feel about you from their own um, background or history or awareness or lack thereof, brings things to the table. And so there is a lack of tolerance um, and irritability. There's, a, I just want this problem to go away. What we're not seeing is the compassion. What we're not seeing is people asking the question, the why, what is going on? What is this pain or this reaction that I'm seeing and how can I help? And so, and then where do, where do the kids go? So if I have a kid who's acting out and I suspend them or I expel them or I put them in detention. They're just over there out of my way, right? Nobody's helped them. That's how they're gonna see themselves always. I'm just gonna be removed whether it's from institutions, systems, society, because no one stopped to give them the tools that they needed to be better and to heal. Um, so it starts with every intervention, every interaction, every outburst, there need, the time has to happen to pause. Like the, the knee jerk reactions that we have are punitive. And if we say, is this punitive or is this healing? If we really asked ourselves, we might dig a little bit deeper with the resources and the um, things that we do to help people.
1: Great, we actually have a, a question from the chat. This is from Daniel. So, so Daniel, I'm gonna pass it off to you and you can un, unmute and ask okay. Dr. Tuitt.
2: Uh, Dr. Tuitt, I wanted to know, uh, so as we watched the videos, uh, the, the response the police had appeared pretty consistent with their training, um, which, you, which you spoke to. Uh, my sense is that uh, it's unlikely they're going to be able to broaden their skill sets, uh, either broadly enough or deeply enough to effectively intervene in those situations. Uh, certainly, they can expand to some degree, but, but not as much as maybe others. I guess I'm curious if you have some sense of what might be an effective means to advocate for uh, getting more mental health practitioners or crisis responders to be the people intervening at those points.
0: Yeah, I I think it's really multi-layered. I think that we need to really pull back and take a look at our systems. I feel like, first of all, let me just say that I feel like our police have gotten, um, have not even gotten a fair share. I think that it's, unfair to expect anyone coming out of high school without a degree within six months to now be patrolling communities that they're not even comfortable being with people they're not even comfortable being around. And so, first of all, I think that if we're going to have police officers in the community, I can't be a nurse in six months. We shouldn't have officers on the streets in six months. So the the whole training and philosophy of policing Mm -hmm. with all this money that they can have for surveillance Let's defund some of the surveillance and put it into adequate training and then have officers that it's not a blanket. So you get a call, there needs to be teams that respond to certain calls and based on those calls is who else should be partnered in the response. If I'm being told that there's a nine-year-old suicidal child, then that should be a mental health response. You might have an officer there to assist, to support, but your lead would be different and your training would be different. And even the officers there, would be trained specifically in mental health versus somebody's robbing the bank. Those officers were specifically dealing with robbers. That's what they do. And so I think that they need that training. And then we need different resources, period. We need to normalize mental health so much that it's abnormal not to be getting services. You know, it's abnormal not to be counseled or to be talking to someone. And so we really need to flip how we look at things and what's normal what's something must be wrong with you if you and then what our response is so yes do i want to see millions of dollars every year going into hiring more police officers or do i want to see millions of dollars going into resiliency rooms and counseling and maybe there's therapy that happens on a normal basis maybe that is part of the curriculum where kids have to get counseling and so the time is etched out to make sure that it does happen and it's not this thing in the background that if somebody is so distressed that we might have a counselor who's got X amount of students already and they can't really give that kid what they need. And so those are the resources that we just don't have, but we should. And I think people need to understand that it's financially feasible for a lot of businesses to send kids just like they did when you were orphaned to work to keep white wealth going. And if you really wanna even dig deeper your jobs, I mean, if you can work and make jeans for 10 cents or nothing, there's your jobs are in the prison system. All of your jobs are being manufactured in jails for very cheap. And so it's a big business that's affecting certain groups disproportionately, as it always has. And we have to look at then and look at now. Resources haven't changed. It's been police to control then, and it's police. To control now. Does that make sense that I'd answer it? I
1: think it. Yeah, you, you definitely answered that uh, <laughs> one. We have, we have a question for Emily. So, Emily, if you want to unmute um, and ask Dr. Tuitt your question.
3: Hi, Dr. Tuitt, Can you hear me okay? Yeah, thank you. Okay. So I don't, this is kind of an odd question. Um, well, First off, thank you for um, your presentation. I found it very eye-opening. There were several things that I just, I didn't I didn't know. <laughs> and um, I'm just kind of shocked to learn about. And um, it's just pretty incredible what still goes on. Um, but a question came to mind from the Mouse of babes video and it was a little bit like guilt inspired because I'm definitely um, been known to Feel like I have to cross the street when I'm alone, um, but I feel like it's more as a woman and feeling vulnerable. Um, and it it's you know it doesn't really I don't I don't think it has so much to do with skin color. Just as like oh, there's a a man who's like the way he's posturing. I'm like, do I you know am I gonna be safe crossing paths? And I but I feel bad because I'm like I don't I don't want to make somebody feel like they're dangerous because they could just be totally innocent. Um, but I, I wonder if there's any uh, advice you'd have on like how, just how to feel safe as a woman in general, and not um, make anyone else feel like they're, <laughs> they're, um, you know, especially if it was a young, you know, if it was a young kid. I don't think I'd feel threatened unless they were just, I don't know, there's something about the way they're acting if they're like shifty or something. <laughs> but uh, if that makes sense, it makes so much sense, and I really appreciate. I really appreciate your honesty
0: in this statement because I think a lot of people feel exactly what you're feeling, and I'm just gonna be I'm just gonna be honest. I think a lot of it goes to your relationships with people that are not like you. Possibly um, the amounts that you may or may not have. I know that if all I knew about me was what I saw on television, I would not like myself either. Right? If my only interactions was how I was portrayed, I would think that people like me worship me or not to be trusted. And then, so I asked you to kind of explore a little bit. Is this with every male? Is this with certain males? What is shifty? What makes you feel uncomfortable? What have you done? Like, did you look? Did you engage? Did you smile? Did you say hello? Or did you avoid? Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of people avoid what they don't know and don't understand. And I think that words like shifty, not trustworthy, sketchy, get applied to people who are just doing normal, everyday things, but because of the way they look, those assumptions become very dangerous. Mm. And so just like you see the kids, I'm just being normal. I can't go, my hair is a representation. My hair makes me look like a thug. I got suspended for dreadlocks. I can't be the value victorian because I have braids. So, you know, what is, or what looks safe? Is it someone with a button up and khakis versus someone with a hoodie and jeans? And why did you draw, I don't feel safe as a conclusion? You know, were they with friends? Were they laughing and joking with each other? Were they socializing? Were they looking at you in an aggressive way? Were they making comments toward you? What assumptions did you make that might've caused you to react in a certain way because of what images or stories or things you've heard. And this is why I use the video so that there is a humanistic approach. It's one thing like if we say the homeless, homelessness is horrible. We all feel like homelessness is horrible. When you say my best friend ended up homeless, that has a different feeling. It has a different understanding. It has a different layer to what you wanna do to make change or to help or to support. It makes people real. And so I think that the more we make people real and understand that we've had a lot of images that have negatively portrayed people like me, Um, but that's what it is and it's for a reason. It's been for a reason and we have to break out of that mentality. And I'm not saying to ever put yourself in an unsafe situation. I'm saying, check your gut, check your assumptions, Check how you're feeling versus what you're actually seeing, and does it make sense?
3: Yeah, um, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that, and that definitely um, clarifies things for me. I I have definitely made judgments based on the way people are dressed, especially if they're like wearing a lot of the like the the rapper outfit, basically. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I I don't, it is hard. Like, I didn't. I grew up in a pretty pretty white school, and um, we had. I um, had a lot of, I um, had some, it, it was a community where there were some you know, immigrant workers, and so we had, um, there were people, you know, Latino origin, um, but I think I had, I had one, you know, one girl um, that was of color that was, I was friends, you know, good friends with, and she, honestly, she, she had white parents, and so she had, mm-hmm. acted very white, I don't, yeah, yeah, I didn't really. Um, yeah, I don't know a lot of people that. Um, yeah, that's yeah, right. hard. Right. it I know. I it definitely made, made stereotypes and something I want want to change. Um, but I guess when I was saying shifty, I was thinking like um, in Nor- in Northampton when I lived there, we would be walking um, after dark, and there's a lot of um, you know drug addiction and uh, definitely home, you know, homeless people. And I just, not that I think that they're more of a thread. I just don't know a lot about when, you know, people are under the influence of drugs, um, how. But that, that might be a good place to start. Yeah.
0: If, you know, that's a great place to start because then maybe you'll know what's under the surface and it doesn't come from a place of fear. And I do know that looks and and imaging matters. I'll tell you, I've been told many a time, you don't look like a doctor. I love that statement. I I love it. I will wear my clothes, my urban all day long because yeah, this is what a doctor looks like. This is representation. I still, when I hear the word doctor think a white man's walking in the room automatically. It's like, oh, it's somebody else. But if they say Dr. So-and-so first image, white man. And so I think the more we work to to shift that narrative and to acknowledge that we fear what we don't understand. And so the only way to to dispel that fear, uh, because a lot of times it's not even rational, is to get to know people. Go volunteer at a shelter. Go go to some meetings where people are. I mean, learn to be around people that are different and have conversation. You'd be surprised what's not different.
1: Emily, I just want to take a second to thank you for being open and honest and sharing with us, because that's what it takes to have these conversations. You know, it's, it's uncomfortable at times. And, you know, a lot of times we are guarded and afraid to make those statements. And you did fantastic. And thank you for sharing that. Quick little side note to that too. Next month in March, our stigma is curable presentation is going to be on addiction. So if you want to follow what Dr. Tu- to it said and, and kind of check it out, you're more than welcome to come and also experience that.
3: Beautiful, great, thank you.
1: Um, okay, one last one, unless we get any more in the chat, but I think this is a really good way to end the conversation. This was in the forum, someone wrote this question. It says, why are you so dope? Because
0: <laughs> struggle builds character, baby. <laughs> <laughs> been there, done that. I was those kids. Okay. I was the one who didn't have the resource. I was the one who was hungry, who was, you know, waiting for people to throw out their food by the garbage can. You know, I was that person. And so I get it. I'm the felon. I'm the, Hey, Emily, I'm your thug. Just so you know, (laughs) I'm that person. Right. But I'm also the one who somebody breathed life into. I'm also the one who told me that I am not a product of my environment. I'm also the one who someone said, get out of the passenger seat and drive your own car over here. So somebody also watered me when I thought I was a weed, And those things are life shifting. And it might not be in the moment, because I can tell you I was watered, but it didn't didn't resonate at the moment, but it comes back. And you do remember your value and you do remember your worth. Um, But it wasn't because I pulled myself up from any bootstrap, it's because village. And I'm a firm believer in village. There's some people around me who showed me my worth when I didn't see it myself. And then we pay it forward. And if you pay it forward, you're just like automatically dope because it's just a thing about it that like, you know, <laughs> you just can't go wrong.
1: I thought, you were, I thought you were just gonna shrug that one off, but you made yeah, you it know. very, very on point. <laughs> All right. So I just want to take this second to thank you, Dr. Tuit, for coming in and and opening this dialogue up, talking about village. And there are a lot of resources that are in the slide that I'll send out to everyone in an email. So you can check out any of those resources. If you want the videos, you can check them out on that. And there are a couple other uh, resources that are out there in the community that I can also share with you if you're interested. So feel free to send me a message. And, you know, we'll just create this email village of sharing resources to do the work and continue the work on so awesome thank you guys for showing up today and, and partaking in this and that's what we need so uh, I just feel so much grace and gratitude to you all so thank you
0: thanks guys appreciate the village talks.